manipad me home. Religion, science, myths and legends all point toward the next evolution in human consciousness. What do the invisible realms hold? Who's telling us and how do they know? We're investigating insights from around the world to answer the question, what does the material world arise out of and where do we go once we've dropped the body? You're about to go interdimensional with Robert Wallace and Adam Jeffrey to Undiscovered my Spiritual own, Realities. My own brother, sister. Yeah, same it's that special time, folks, when we meditate on the higher spiritual realities. So sit up straight, still your mind, and breathe deeply and peacefully through your nose. In the next hour, if everything goes according to plan, we're talking about Steiner, Swedenborg, and A Course in Miracles, and the impersonal life. Also, if time permits, we'll discuss something of the Christian Apocrypha. It's oh so holy. And tonight, uh, between 6.30 and 10.30 p.m. Central Time, you can see the Super Blood Wolf Moon Lunar Eclipse, the last one for the next 18 years. So Google that if you want to make the most of this event. Cool. Adam, it's great to see you again. Great to see you, Robert. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thank you for being back. So we were talking earlier, you've been reading The Impersonal Life this week. I have. It just pulled me in. I, I couldn't stop reading it. I read the whole thing. That's awesome. Yeah. We're going to be talking about that later because um, you've got a lot of wisdom and knowledge to share on that. Um, the first thing that I want to talk about is the Course in Miracles. And a lot of our listeners are probably very familiar with the Course in Miracles. It's been out, I don't know, at least like, what, 30 years or something like that. I believe so. Um, and it is a book that was inspired uh, by the Spirit and came to a couple psychologists they may even have been psychotherapists and so it was kind of an amazing thing what had happened was the uh, manager of these two psychotherapists the boss came and said we need to find a way where we can all work together better and Mm. so all of a sudden one of these two individuals uh became inspired to start writing and the writings turned out to be basically inspired by the christ at least that's who they've attributed that to right and uh, and so the book is very powerful. It's a very thick book. If you're watching on Facebook Live, you'll see it's a pretty hefty book. It contains multiple parts. There's a text, which is basically the scripture of the movement. And then there's a couple components, one called the workbook for students and one called the manual for teachers. And these used to be separate volumes. In this book, they're all collected together. Oh, cool. Great. One of the uh, aspects uh, of the teaching is something called the holy instant. The holy instant. What do you think of when you hear the holy instant? I think of the now, um, which is something that, of course, is embraced in so many different spiritual practices, is the idea of living right now, not dwelling in the past, um, in the... the um, wounds and the baggage that we carry from there and not thinking too much about the future or being worried about that, but just experiencing the now, the mm. holy now. So mm. that, that's what I think of. I don't know much about this book, but... No, that's, that's basically what it is. Yeah, cool. It's the, uh, it's the elimination of our attentions from anything that isn't basically the still presence of what God is. Yeah. Which is, you know, the ambience that this whole production... Of life is taking place on. Cool. 
Um, I love it. I'm going to read just the beginning quote uh, from this because it's, it's pretty awesome. Can you imagine what it means to have no cares, no worries, no anxieties, but merely to be perfectly calm and quiet all the time? Yet that is what time is for, to learn just that and nothing more. God's teacher cannot be satisfied with his teaching until it constitutes all your learning. He has not fulfilled his teaching function until you have become a consistent learner that you learn only of him. Oh, that you have become such a consistent learner that you learn only of him. When this happened, you will no longer need a teacher or time in which to learn. So mm. the writing actually speaks to the individual as one having the teacher already in him. Yeah. The higher voice of the higher intellect, uh, which is usually referred to as the father consciousness in the individual, it speaks to, to that and it helps you to discern the voices in your head. Because, you know, we have the notion of me, myself, and I. Well, who is me, and who is myself, and who's I? <laughs> all right. You know, and yeah. in, in one sense, they are all the same being, but in the other sense, they're different. They right. serve different roles, and they come from different places, and they have different, you know, temperaments, depending on, you know, the, your <laughs> person's development. Absolutely. And so, I really uh, love reading everything that this book talks about, but that particularly is the gateway to the kingdom of heaven. Awesome. And this show is really focused on, you know, where is that threshold between this world and the next? Yeah. And when it comes down to it, spiritually speaking, it's in a psychological sphere of disconnection between the physical materiality of this world and moving into the land of causes where things come from in their more perfect state. Absolutely. Cool. I hear so much similarity between that and what I experienced in the impersonal life already, too. I, I can't wait to dive into uh, The Course in Miracles. You're not going to have to wait long, Adam. We're going to get there. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I just, the, the, I just love the similarities that are there already. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to hear your takeaways this week, actually. Um. The one thing that I want to share with regards to the holy instant is, um, actually, I'm not going to share it right now. I'm going to withhold that from y'all. Um, but let's go down here to this idea that Rudolf Steiner shares with us. And it's kind of a, a mantra or it's, it's a way of thinking, something that if we really meditate on, we will start to see the truth of it in a spiritual way. And it, it's this. In my thinking, I am united with the stream of cosmic existence. Hmm. And he says if we really like meditate on that idea, we're going to see that in our thinking world, if we can become conscious in that world of thought, we will see that there is a stream of cosmic existence that we inhabit. And I don't know what I was listening to this week, and it kind of addressed that, and it, it was coming from the angle that a lot of people feel like unless the impressions come from an outside source, then they're invalid. They're mm. essentially then hallucinations or, you know, whims or, you know, notions of the mind as opposed to objective fact right. that comes informs from without. And the idea of the teaching is that we create a reality with our thoughts, whether or not you like that your thoughts are real. Right. And 
that goes right down to an even more profound point that in the spiritual world, after we've passed, we actually externalize our interior world. So the what you're thinking now becomes exteriorized. It becomes manifested as an environment, as landscape, and as you know, spiritual beings and entities and all of this sort of thing. Wow. And then our current world of memories interiorizes. So now we're in this world of thought, and then our memories of earth life have now become a faint memory, just as right now our spiritual existence between lives is a faint memory for us. Wow. <laughs> yeah. There's a, along those lines, since we're dealing with the subject of spiritual realities today and every day, um, there's an idea that Steiner talks about uh, that relates to the nature of our thoughts with respect to what they are and um, how they reapproach us. So every thought that we have that has any kind of feeling attached to it is actually a vivified thought that becomes an independent spiritual being. And it becomes something like a, a pet, like a thought pet. And so what'll happen is you'll have this thought, you know, of for something for good or bad or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and you'll have these feelings and it creates this being who now will reapproach the soul of the person from time to time in order to re-stimulate the thoughts so that it can feed off of the emotions that those thoughts cause you. Wow. Causing it to become bigger and bigger and more powerful. Right, right. And so a lot of thoughts that we have are thoughts that are residual thoughts that we've been kind of cultivating unconsciously. Uh, we could think of them as beings who are, you know, wanting to be fed by this mechanism of thought and feeling. Mm-hmm. But what it comes, what it becomes is, uh, if it's a bad thought, it becomes like a psychosis or a neurosis. Right. It becomes this all-encompassing idea. You know, hmm. if we think, oh, I can't do something, and we're feeling bad, and then the next day, here comes that notion, that thought, oh, I can't. You know, it's really that being reapproaching us, you know, re- re-stimulating us. Right. Unless, you know, we re-stimulate it on our own and, and voluntarily, you know, feed the being. And then it becomes a little bit bigger. And just like a thought becomes more sure and grounded in us. So it's actually a being. Wow. Who's standing around us. So yeah, the idea is if you want to get rid of those negative beings, then you take your attention off of them and put it on the ideas that you want. And in that way, you starve it, and the being dies. It perishes. Wow. It sk- wow. skedaddles. So there That's is, a good one. Yeah. Mm, it's amazing. Yeah. It's kind of a practical visualization for, Absolutely. you know, escorting your thoughts around and yeah. you know, managing your inner thought life. Absolutely. Can I share one that, that I use? Um, the, the Sufi mystic Hafiz, um, in one of his poems, he talks about the thoughts and the thoughts that we give energy to and that he talks about the negative thoughts um, as as being intruders that are coming into your mind on ladders, that mm. they're climbing into your mind on these ladders. And he, he talks about pushing the ladders away, mm. recognizing the negative ones and, and pushing them away as they're coming in. And so that's been a practice of mine for a while is to, to start to recognize those. And before they even get a chance to get there, as soon as they're climbing in on these ladders, as Hafiz said. Just push the ladders away. So I find that as being very similar to um, to the Steiner stuff you were just talking about. I love yeah. it. Yeah. 
How early in your spiritual uh, walk do you think it was, or how late in your spiritual walk was it before you started to handle thoughts as significant? I think a lot of times in religion, we think thoughts are kind of secondary things, but there's what we know to do and what we should do, and thoughts have trivial worth. Man, they have been important to me for a very long time. I would say at least 15 or 20 years. And, and you know, this goes back to uh, even when I was in a, in a more closed-minded and fundamentalist viewpoint, you know, when I was kind of trapped in that for a while. Um, even then, I remember, you know, the Bible teaching, or Paul said, um, take your thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was significant. I saw that as spiritual warfare, as it was termed in Mm -hmm. in the circles of that day, which is the idea that there are some thoughts that are going to come in that aren't necessarily even my thoughts, you know. So where where are these coming from and what's happening here? Are these, you know, quote unquote demonic is maybe the way that I thought back then. I might think of it a little different now. But but, But I did give value to the idea that some thoughts are not worthy of attention, and others are very worthy of that attention. So to me, that's been a spiritual battle for as long as spirituality has meant something to me at all. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that for me, too. And you yeah. can't really have spirituality unless you're talking about thoughts. Absolutely. Being, you know, you know the primary... Yeah, Powerful. Yeah, yeah. Battlefield. Yeah. Uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah. Uh, according to your faith, so be it unto you. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Yeah, there you go. More. Uh, Jesus said, "If if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already done committed. You've the, already committed the act." You know, there he is saying, "You know, your your thoughts are way more powerful than a lot of people might think." Yeah, and that's an awesome point because uh, what Steiner talks about is that we see out manifested after we've done crossed the threshold of life and death. Uh, we see outmanifested the good and the bad severely uh, manifested. So what little good you've done is shown in a glorious light, and we see spiritual goodness coming out of those things, and even the, the slightest negativities can are creating negative forces. Right. And it gets really bad, especially when we're in a straight-up rage. Absolutely, of course. So <laughs> I like to think about that. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um. Uh, our thoughts as food for angels. Now, this is kind mm. of might be coming out of left field for people because they're thinking uh, angels don't eat. We're not food, and, <laughs> and even and even if you know somebody could eat a thought, you know, mm. why has nobody told us that? Or were our thoughts are being consumed by angels as food? And so, mm. uh, actually, it, this is what's happening. So just like the plant world derives sustenance and nutrients out of the mineral world, and animals draw it out of the plant world, yeah. humans draw out of the animal world, you know, for those people who eat animals, or if you just think about how we've, uh, well, I would put that second to how we've evolved out of, you know, our body, how we've evolved out of, you know, these lower forms. Mm-hmm. But there's somebody above us who's consuming us for a type of food. Interesting. And that these are angelic beings who eat our good thoughts. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so yeah. Uh, Steiner compares uh, the value of, uh, you know, a plant and its purpose to be eaten for an animal and it discovering that 
its purpose really was to be consumed as being as significant uh, for it you know, it knowing its purpose as our thought life is to us knowing that our thoughts are designated as angelic food. Mm. That's, that's kind of out there, but I'm going to sow that seed because we'll elaborate on that later as we stew on it. Yeah. It's cool stuff. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the impersonal life you spent this week, uh, reading it. Uh, I've been over the book a few times, uh, you're fresh on it right now. I yeah. want to hear some of the revelations and uh, the primary <laughs> takeaways because very powerful. It just pulled me in and I couldn't stop. You know, I, I went into um, to research a little bit of everything that you said we might talk about this week. And that one really pulled me in. First of all, um, I had heard of it before, but mostly because of Elvis's connections with it, you know, and, and I knew that he was completely, um, obsessed with the book and that it, it meant so much to him that he bought suitcases full of them and gave them away to people on a regular basis. And um, it is said that a copy, his personal copy of it was found with him when, when they found him passed away. Mm. Um, and so um, I went to my dad this week and asked him what he knows about it. My, my dad is a bit of an Elvis expert. Uh, for those who don't know, he's um He's worked with Graceland for many years, and um, and so he's a bit of an Elvis historian. And, and um, so I, I just went to him and asked, and he said, oh, yeah, of course. Of course I'm familiar with that book. And I said, have you read it? And he said, no. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to. I, I just feel intrigued by it, and, and I did. And, and, and those who are watching, you can see that's a, it's a short read. It's a quick read, um, but it's deep, and it's beautiful. Um, and and I was pulled in for a lot of reasons. I, I started to do a little bit of research on on a little bit of everything, like I said. But um, when I got to the impersonal life, right off the bat, I found an audio clip of Wayne Dyer, who's been a big influence on me for a few years now, um, talking about the impersonal life and how much it has meant to him and his spiritual journey. And the instant he started talking about it, I was just like, oh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of significance to this book, obviously, for a lot of reasons. But one of the things he said, this was a big epiphany for me this week. <laughs> um, he was talking about the fact that it's 18 chapters. And he said, um, he said the Bhagavad Gita is also 18 chapters. And he said, and that was one of the more influential books um, for him and his spiritual journey. And then also probably the most influential book for him for his spiritual journey was the Tao Te Ching, which is 81 chapters. So it's eight and one reversed again. And he said, so 18, 18 and 81. And then he started talking a little bit about numerology and about how, what's that now? Adding to nine. Yes, exactly. How it adds to nine and, 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 and a few other thoughts about it, that one is manifestation, you know, zero being the, the creative energy in space where creation begins, and one is the manifestation of that, so the beginning, in essence, and eight being the symbol of infinity. And so you have the journey from the beginning to infinity, which is the one and eight, and then, of course, adding up to nine and and all of these things. And I just, I was like, wow, this is really, really intense, cool stuff. And that night that I heard that, I, I went to bed just kind of meditating on it and chewing on it, and I just couldn't sleep. That's awesome. <laughs> and as a musician, something profound kind of hit me. I was like, wow, you know, all of music, the way that we understand it in the Western world, our, our major scale 
um, and the way that we communicate with each other when we play a song is based on a number system that, that is essentially one to eight. And after eight, it all starts over again. So if you think of a major scale, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and eight is the same as one. Eight is one. So that's an octave. Um, and so interestingly to me, I was like, this is, this is pretty cool because you have the alpha and the omega. The first and the last, the beginning and infinity, not the end, but infinity because it just keeps going on. So just like a major scale, once you get to eight, it just starts over again and eight becomes one. Mm -hmm. So there you have infinity before you in music. You know, it's as if God built it into music to tell us, you know, this is what infinity looks like. The journey is from one to eight and it just keeps going. You know, and I was like, <sighs> my mind was just blown wide open. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one day equals nine, which in Pythagorean numerology is the end of a cycle. And that begins a new cycle. So when you're talking about eight, eight and one come to nine. So, I mean, it's sort of the same thing in yeah. a different way. And so uh, we all live in nine-year cycles, according to numerology. <laughs> right. And every nine right. years, you know, we start to build up another uh, aspect of our path. Maybe we start a new project or we're starting to refine some part of ourselves. And as we get to the first year and the second year and the third year, each of these numbers corresponds with a different phase of development of whatever we're working on. Um, and so by the time we get to the seventh year, where there's a lot of contemplation and intellectual you know settling and then the eighth year is usually when people see like a, a financial sort of uh you know a payout or you know bankruptcy or whatever you know depending on the effort that they put in in the prior years yeah. and then nine that ninth year is the wrapping up of that cycle and then one you're going to start a whole new theme for the next nine years so cool yeah numerology is amazing oh it's just mind-boggling and, and i'm not very familiar with numerology but i am familiar with music and it's funny how they're they're saying the same things mm -hmm. you know and it's just interesting to tap into that you know and it's um that was a really mind-boggling experience for me to just be opened up to that idea and then um to really deeply meditate on and contemplate this idea of what the significance of these numbers mm -hmm. and that uh you know i mean these these books it's interesting, too, that the Bhagavad Gita is very similar in a lot of ways to the impersonal life. Mm. One, one is thought of more as an Eastern philosophy, and another is presented in a, in a very Western, we, as we would say, you know, the impersonal life is um, more to the Western mind's understanding. The intellect more than... Right, yeah. right. But the journey is very similar if you, if you were to actually just compare the two. The idea that in, in the Bhagavad Gita, you have Krishna communicating... You know, this connection with Arjuna. Yes, exactly. And, and, and Arjuna coming to understand the oneness with Krishna, you know, and, mm. and, and, and the same thing is happening here in the impersonal life. We're, we're, we are to come to see that um, it is the Christ inside of us that's always been there that is bringing us back. If we believe in this idea of separateness uh, from God, from the Christ, well, then this is the invitation back to home, you mm. know, to, um, to infinity, yeah. <laughs> that journey back. That's awesome. So, yes. yeah. Beautiful. You know, it, and that touches right back to what Ellie Tom Elamine was talking about last uh, week. And, and really it's a, you know, predominant theme in all religious writings. And that is that idea of unity of a singular consciousness, yeah. a non-duality. And right. in those moments where maybe we've seen a, a glimmer of non-duality, in our lives, we've, you know, realized, you know, the spiritual mind 
in that state of like complete well-being and you know mm. pan determinism and um you know just having no lack or no separateness and so there goes your fear and your worry and all of that and it's a very specific state of mind mm, that's cool I, I would want to to say to that idea the this whole idea of separateness um the last full album that that Christy and I made is as three day flight is called separate same. I don't know if you know that yeah, or not, that, yeah. but that's what the, the, the theme of the album is, was that was, um, mm. essentially when I was writing all of those songs, that was the point in my spiritual journey where I was really, um, sort of wrestling with those ideas, this idea of separateness, but the fact that we're all interconnected and all the same. And I, and I wrote a song called yes and no. So I would invite our listeners to take a listen to that. And just that, that song mostly captures that idea there are other songs on that album um that are about the idea but yes and no is really just me diving into this idea of the fact that we see ourselves as separate yet we're the same yeah yeah that's amazing yeah that's a that's a big one because you know a lot of people are suffering because they're thinking that they're different from other people people think and this is a a a point that i really want to bring up real quick is when we think that we're different or we say we say some lie, it's kind of a lie, I think, that everybody's everybody's different. Everybody feels different. And in some way that's true, you know, because we're yeah. prompted and we're stirred by different things and other people are unmoved by the same things. But at the same time, you know, the Bible tells us the golden rule is do unto others as you'd have them do unto you for a reason. Right. Because you know, we all might have different configurations if we're thinking in terms of a computer, an mm-hmm. operating system, but we all have the same hardware. We're all basically in this epoch or age, we're on the same operating system, you mm. know, depending on your location, you know, in the world. Right. Uh, so, you know, we all know that to be cut hurts, to be, you know, slighted hurts, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, to be em- embraced in times of uncertainty is warming and calming. Yeah. So, you know... And then when I look at things like, whether it's marketing, whether it's um, things that have mass appeal, like if you're on social media and you see something that gets like a ton of likes, my takeaway from that is this is resonating with the populace at large. Hmm. This is something that is inside of, you know, everybody. It's resonating with everybody because it's in everybody. Yeah. And if we were really aware of that, you know, we might be able to collect, you know, the humanity's greatest hits and you know we could put together you know the puzzle that of things that just everybody likes yeah objectively across the board right what one thing that hit me when you were saying all of that is is um again returning to the bible because that's where a lot of my um my original study and thinking comes from and returns to often um one of my favorite things that Jesus ever said is love your enemies you know and it it was a mind-shattering idea for, you know, um, the man who is known as the Christ, who embodied the Christ, the Messiah, to say, love your enemies, you know, and, and this idea is like, why, why would he say that, you know, because that, that was extremely revolutionary, especially at his time, you know, but I mean, people still struggle with this idea of loving, yeah. and well, they, they're the same. They are you. They're your brothers and sisters. However you want to envision that, or whatever stage you're at, you can at least see these people even your enemies are your brothers and sisters mm. you know so it's um you know and and paul said our not, our battle is not against flesh and blood you know back to that idea of what we call in 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 that circle spiritual warfare mm-hmm. the idea that um, we've got to give up this fight with other people 
mm-hmm. you know, that this is, uh, these are our brothers and sisters and we've got to come back to this idea of unity of oneness. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that comes to mind as you say that also is that, you know, the scriptures tell us forgive and you'll be forgiven. Yeah. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Absolutely. Jesus gives you, you know, he breaks it all down. Like last time we're talking about Ho'oponopono and I love you. Uh, please forgive me. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I love you. Please forgive me. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, this whole, and then we think about what Jesus said, the law and the prophets. That means both sides of your Bible. Yeah. That means everything yeah. you've ever learned, no matter how many years of education you've had, they all can be summarized and brought down to this one thing, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's simple. And yeah. any sim- simpleton can learn that one thing. So in that sense, we're without excuse. Because if you accomplish that one thing, I mean all the deeper wisdom, you know, follows that. Absolutely. Uh, DeLois, she's our producer here. Do you have any thoughts on the subject? Oh, I'm catching her off guard because she's sitting there thinking, but I know she's been engaged. I do have a question. When you were talking about the me, myself, and I, that Mm kind of sparked my interest. How do you define your I? What makes you i what makes me me and myself those are great questions so i i think the easiest way to start would be to address the i the so-called capital i when you say i so in esoteric teachings the i is that drop of god it's the spark of god it's this light that is the inmost in a person and that's immediately surrounded by an ego identity So when we talk about an ego, think of a cloud maybe, the very core of that is a spark of light. And that actually is one with God. It comes from God. It's destined to return to God. And it is, it has pretty much two capacities. And that is to see and to hear. The faculties of speech and movement and all these other things, this will and all of this, these are uh, aspects of the soul that Mm. that I, goes into so the eye in the soul or the astral body then is able to navigate the soul with its will uh by way of its attention so it puts its attention this eye core onto different thoughts and it moves deeper into different paths which unfurl and open up a future for itself which is how it decides to pursue this or that and then we have uh the idea of a soul and this is a body of desires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we might, we might call that the myself. Uh, that being that suffers if it feels slighted, if it doesn't get what it wants. Um, and then below that, and we'll talk more about that. And below that, we have our physical body and the ethereal body. And mm-hmm. that's obviously our physical body, what we see. And then it's shaped by the ethereal body and its memory. So we may say that that's me, and then myself is my astral uh, thought life, my desire world, where I experience the sensations that I get through the body and that I process and that I navigate around with the eye. So Mm. I know it's kind of confusing, but we're thinking three components of who we really are, the interior space that we're working in, and then the exterior body that is in one sense, uh, impinging itself onto the soul. So yeah. sometimes we think, oh, we're inhabiting the body, 
and another school of thought, which I'm not going to name names because they are a litigious branch of religious teaching, uh, <laughs> is the <laughs> body is actually impinging itself into the soul. And so hmm. it's kind of a thorn in the side of the soul. Um, and along them lines, something else just occurred to me, and it has to do with death and, uh, and that when we uh, die, one of the things we're not afraid of uh, what we're actually afraid of is not so much going into the unknown, but it's leaving the familiar. Hmm. Yeah. Have you heard that angle? I have. I've yeah. heard it like in a different sense of what you're saying. Like you're scared to die, but you know what's going to come, but you don't know what's going to happen after or right. how you're going to get to that the point. Fear of the unknown. Yeah. 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 That was good. Oh, man. I got... Uh, a great standard quote about that um, i have another question yes, so like i know we're just meeting each other so when you see a person what when you pertain to the i me and myself what stands out to you of that person does it the i that stands out or the me or the myself or does the me come after the i <laughs> that's a good question Man, that's a great question i love it <laughs> and and so this is this is what i would say about that is there's a few components to that. On the external level, what we see, surface level of a person, their facial features, for instance, right. you know, the appearance, whether or not they have a, you know, disability or whether or not they're glowing, radiant, and youthful yeah. or what. These are characteristics of the internal world. So in Chinese hmm. face reading, for instance, we're, we're shown how we can see aspects of the soul in the physical body. So if somebody has a big forehead, for instance, which you got a good size forehead. I do. That means that you're a big picture person. Hmm. And somebody with a shorter forehead, which means their hairline comes down closer to their eyebrows, these kind of people tend to stay in the details. So, you know, they don't want to think too big. They like to think in the particular instances that they're in. Hmm. Um, and so culturally and, you know, these other aspects of our physicality, they are symptoms of our spiritual development where we are in this incarnation. Mm -hmm. When we think of people like what we we're just saying, do unto others and all of this, I mean, that is the common denominator. That's the I that is in everybody. Right, right. That's the I that loves unconditionally, that is loved by God, that is a piece of God, but it's so obscured. And each person will see variations of that mm -hmm. uh, uh, obscuring, well, because different kinds of thoughts, desires, traumas, you know, wants and preferences and, you know, yeah. uh, levels of selfishness or selflessness. And so that will affect how uh, clear we see into the person's soul. Hmm. And so we have to know that the person has that behind anything they may say, yeah. however ugly or even, you know, you know, however, whatever, that these are just coverings and veils. And it's like Solomon says, you know, all of life is vanity. You know, right, all right. Of this I can see that. And yeah. so, I haven't yeah. heard that one before. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Yeah. That's that's my thought on that. Now, I'm going to go back to what I was just talking about, if I can get it to load up here, of a quote from Steiner, and it regards death. And mm. I think it, it was pretty powerful. So he says, and this is from uh, Rudolf Steiner, The Moment of Death and the Period Thereafter. As part of a lecture that he gave in February 22nd, 1916. And it says, Here on earth, death has a terrifying aspect only because we look upon it as a kind of dissolution, as an end. But when we look back upon the moment of death from the other side, from the spiritual side, then the death continually appears to us as a victory of the spirit, 
as a spirit that is extricating mm. itself from the spirit uh, from the physical it then appears as the greatest most beautiful and significant moment moreover this experience kindles that which constitutes our ego consciousness after death throughout the time between death and a new birth we have an ego consciousness that not only resembles but far exceeds that which we have during the physical life we would not have this ego consciousness if we could not look back incessantly if we could not always see but from the other side from the spiritual side that moment in which our spiritual part extricated itself from the physical we know that we are an ego only because we know that we have died that our spiritual has freed itself from our physical part we uh, the, uh, when we cannot contemplate the, phys- uh, the moment of death beyond the portal of death, uh, I'm going to reread that because this is where the whole thing gets its significance. When we cannot contemplate the moment of death beyond the portal of death, then our ego consciousness after death is in the same case as our physical ego consciousness here upon the earth when we are asleep. Just as we know nothing of the physical ego consciousness when we are asleep, so we know nothing concerning ourselves after death if, now here's the point, we do not constantly have before us in the moment, uh, before us, the moment of death. It stands before us as mm. one of the most beautiful and loftiest moments. So what it's saying that mm. is if you're not contemplating your death as a glorious moment where you're basically going to burn up like a phoenix and rise up, yeah. whatever seed you've been cultivating, if you're not looking forward to that moment, then when you actually die your so-called ego consciousness, it basically blacks out. And, wow. and you don't you know, really retain consciously your experience of life between uh, death and a rebirth. So, Interesting. So it's very important that we not only contemplate uh, death, but that we come to look forward to it, that we're kind of cultivating and readying ourselves for it. Wow. And we'll <laughs> think about, you know, the mystics and the, you know, and the people who would keep like skulls on their desks. Maybe you've seen the, oh, they got a skull, they're, you know, alchemist or what. And those skulls were there to help remind them of their mortality. Wow. So they could contemplate their inevitable death and act accordingly. Because they're going to come into a world of either like regret or they're going to come into a world of hallelujah, you know, it's come to fruition. And I am so glad that I made the the choices and the sacrifices I did on earth when I did. Wow. Mm. It's so interesting because so many people would perceive that as, um, as what they would call, um, morbid, you know, they would say, why why would you keep a skull on your desk? That's so morbid. Or why would you focus so much on death? This is, Mm -hmm. this is morbidity. This is why why do you do that? You know, Mm -hmm. but Steiner gives us a, uh, a beautiful outlook at it you know it's like yeah look forward to your death this is a this is a moment of liberation in a, in a sense you know yeah 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 uh i think that was probably one of the biggest things i had to get over growing up is i had a constant fear of death i would mm. go to school and i'd sit there in my class and i just remember imagining the people i love finding out that they had died or something horrible and i'm just like terrorizing myself with these thoughts yeah. And then eventually I started to, you know, come to like befriend the concept of death and really understand, like come to terms with its, you know, reality. And once that fear started to get rationalized away, once it started to embrace the truths and I started, then that became something that 
you know, I could learn to accept. I think it's in the Bhagavad Gita or it's in one of the Hindu texts that talks about how a wise man does not mourn for those who have mm. passed. Right. He doesn't feel bad that because somebody has passed. Steiner talks about that, you know? Yeah. It's like yeah. nothing will change for you if you cultivated yourself, if you've crossed the threshold of death and, you know, attained clairvoyance and initiation in this life. The only thing that's going to change is for the people around you who don't see you and imagine maybe you're lost or, you know, feel yeah. pity for you. But you're better off than ever before. Yeah. I want to add one thing to that if I could. Um, Again, back to the Bible, one of the most reiterated commands in the entire Bible, and a lot of people don't give this attention, but one of the most reiterated commands in the entire Bible is fear not. Mm-hmm. Do not be afraid. Yeah. You know, over and over and over again. You see it, and it's particularly encounters with angels. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of times that's, you know, I think people think they would freak out if they had an encounter with an angel. Oh, you know, and, and, the, and the angel says, fear not, do not mm. be afraid, you know, but Jesus said it over and over again as well. And it, it's reiterated through the Bible literally thousands of times, you know, do not be afraid. Yeah. And I think what goes hand in hand with that idea is people think, well, fear, if fear was uh, optional, nobody would be fearful. Well, the Bible says, uh, a couple things. And one of them, it says, is there is no fear in love because exactly. fear has to do with punishment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. Exactly. And basically what that saying is our sins have separated us from God. Mm. The guilt that we feel because of our sins have created the knowledge that we need to be punished, disciplined, and, and then therefore we're afraid. Yeah. Because we know that what's coming for us you know, we deserve what's coming for us and yeah. there's stuff coming for us. So the more that we purify ourselves and we, and we let go of, you know, the sin nature, uh, the more at peace we can be when we're in otherwise scary situations like, you know, interdimensional beings approaching us, even though they have a mantle of loving peace around them. Of course. Yeah. It's our own fear. It's like we see people who are guilty of a crime and they just act all erratic and everything. Yeah. You know, and they self-sabotage and they're all weird and you're like, what's going on in them? Yeah. Because the conscience, it's... you know, is impeding their ability to feel peace. Exactly. That's deep and amazing and beautiful stuff. And I love that that goes back to you too. I mean, you, you hit on that idea that it comes back to our idea of our separateness from God. Mm. Um, you know, this idea of our sin that has separated us from God. And it goes all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the introduction of duality, you know, the idea of, of separating the good and the evil and seeing what's quote unquote bad and what is quote unquote good and that we are bad and that we have this sin and all these things. And again, it all holds hands with what all of these spiritualities have been teaching all along, you know, because a lot of times we think in, in, in again, what we call the Western mindset that uh, we, we don't wrestle with duality as much, but it, it's right there even in, in the the scripture that most Westerners hold, which is the Bible, it's right there at the beginning, you know, that when, when quote unquote sin is introduced to the world, it's through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. And again, that that's talked about a lot in the impersonal life as well. That's a so, good point. That's yeah. a, definitely a loaded topic. The tree yeah. of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. You know, what did the knowledge, you know, do to us? You know, are you know, ignorance is bliss, you know, they say. Right. And all of a sudden now you know these things and you start to condemn yourself. You start to, yeah. you know, have crazy thoughts. And mm-hmm. so we need to 
get from the place of being innocent to knowing what is sin, you know, to even, you know, reaching rock bottom and then building ourselves back up right. to innocence in spite and in light of what we know about the sin world. So we need to come back to that unity consciousness again. Yeah, it's beautiful. The impersonal life uh, talks uh, about this, you know, very famous uh, biblical alliance. Be still and know I am God. So who is I am and uh, what does being still have to do with that? We kind of broached that earlier. Mm-hmm. You want to? Oh, yeah. It, it, it to me is pretty much the, the pivotal point of the entire book and it's introduced right from the beginning and he returns to it throughout is the idea that um as you you work through the book that we call the impersonal life that that part of what you're doing is you're meditating on the idea that of course comes again from scripture but you're meditating on it and trying to get a deeper understanding and he talks about putting the emphasis on the different words in different ways as you meditate on it you know be still, and in, in your stilla, stillness, no emphasis on no. You know, don't just believe it, don't just think it, but no, I am God. And and here you have all these emphasis again. You know, yeah. as you as you meditate on on it each time, exactly. keep your your thought focus on what you're emphasizing. Yeah, yeah. If every time you read that sentence, you emphasize a different word, you know, be or still or no or I am or God, uh another angle will come out of that. And it goes back to what Dolores was talking about with who is or what is the I. And since mm. that I is essentially the son of God, S-U-N, S-O-N. Right. Okay. Uh, we know that that is of God. And mm. just like Jesus said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And yeah. so that's why they seem to be synonymous. So on one hand, we say, well, Jesus uh, wasn't God, but God was in him, which made him de facto because they were one. Right. Jesus said, you know, like, I'm not good. Somebody tried to say, oh, you're a good master. It's like, no, you know, only God the Father in heaven is good. Yeah. So he's rebuking this I idea that he himself is the divine element as being recognized by the people. But in fact, it's that spiritual core that is inside of us that is not of us, that is not our own, but it is hmm. the Father's. So... In that way, uh, being still really settles the dust so that we can see between here and heaven. Right. That we can allow his message to come through undistorted. Yeah, yeah. And we come, we do know that. And so that's another way we can emphasize it is we're still. Yes. And now you know. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Now you know I'm God. Oh, okay, now I know. I was still, and now I know. And that reminds me of the analogy you used either last week or the first week. You talked about the analogy of the water, you know, becoming still like the reflection oh, of the water. Oh, I remember yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah that, that was, was a good a really one. Really beautiful. And, and I thought about as I meditated on this this week, I thought about that analogy again about the water. You know, that you've got to become still mm -hmm. in order to see clearly. Yeah, yeah, and that definitely takes a, a concerted effort. And uh, what I found is some of the breakthroughs that I've had in that way have come through a concerted effort. One story I was going to tell is uh, when I finally did this plant meditation that Steiner refers to in his mm. book, How to Know Higher Worlds. And I'd listened to this book over and over and over, and he got to this place that said, if you're not having these kinds of experiences, it's because you're not doing the meditations. And I said, oh, you got me, Steiner, because I've been intellectualizing and feeding myself, right. thinking I'm just going to cognate on it, but you got to actually 
forget it all. Spend time forgetting it all and hmm. just being present, you know? Yeah. Boiling it down. And so I went back to my office because I was on a lunch break at my job. And I had a plant on my desk. And I said, I'm not going to get up from my desk until I achieve the phenomena, this next phenomenon I'm supposed to attain. I said, I'm not going to go home at 5 o'clock when it's time. I'm not going to eat dinner tonight. I'm not coming in the morning because I'm going to sit here all night wow. fixated. <laughs> wow. Five minutes later, after stopping my thoughts, after concentrating on some other aspects of you know, ambient moonlight and uh, thinking from the perspective of the plant, which is kind of an objectivity, a selfless objectivity, everything started to change. And, you know, we'll be able to talk about that more at another time because, you know, we're getting to the end of the show. But uh, that at that point and some of the other things that happened that night, they opened up a sense perception to view clairvoyantly into a spiritual realm, hmm. which I can now see anytime I come into rest and relaxation. Yeah. Forms, you know, uh, some will refer to them as chimeras or specters or you know, ghosts or apparitions or phantoms or, right. you know, different kinds of forms of what. But these are, they're, li they're living beings, whether they're thought forms or mm -hmm. whether they're astral, unembodied, disembodied beings or what. Mm -hmm. They are perceptible by anyone who can bring their thoughts to a certain level of stillness and kind of have this little breakthrough, kind of have that holy instant yeah. moment. Yeah. And it kind of opens up other things. And that doesn't necessarily make you a, a full-time initiate but it definitely gives you a peek into this other world sure and and by that way a kind of a path to keep reapproaching it yeah mm -hmm. and, and i love that you say it's something you carry with you at that point which is exactly again what the impersonal life talks about that once you've had a shift in consciousness it becomes a, a part of your vision that that is a permanent shift in consciousness mm -hmm. so yeah i mean even as you go and you do what you do this has become a part of who you are and the way that you see things and, and your perception of reality. Yeah. 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 And I think that, you know, it's probably the biggest thing that uh, turned me on to Steiner because I was looking to have the subject of the kingdom of heaven treated as a spiritual reality and not merely as a fairy tale, fantasy, futuristic even though churches don't treat it that way, it is de facto treated like something that is far out there, like we're talking Ab about. Absolutely, and yeah. And not right here, right now, yeah. accessible to anybody who'll do the things that the scriptures tell us to do. Right. And, right. you know, and the ideas and even the conclusions that I've come to through these experiences, you know, you could scarcely walk them into a church without being, you know, thrown out as a, as a heretic or, or having some kind of entity. But it's like, where is the spiritual life of the Absolutely. believer if not in experience? Correct. Again, that brings us back to day one, the very first thing we talked about. I mean, Jesus himself was talking about the kingdom of heaven as if this is a present thing. This wasn't a pie in the sky someday, you know, good little boys and girls get to go to heaven. He was saying right here, right now, now, you know, again, yeah. that, we're back to now. We're back to the to the holy instant. Or what, what, what was it again, the instant um, the holy instant. The, yeah, the holy instant. Yeah, we're, we're back to that again. The now. Jesus always talked about the kingdom of heaven in the present tense. Yeah. yeah. And Experience I Experience it now. <laughs> I, you know what I think it is? I think we're afraid to talk about this like this because it almost feels incumbent on the person bringing it up uh, to have, you know, be the pioneer. Okay, well, if you're going to say that it's, it's happening right now, are you yourself in the kingdom of heaven? Well, 
having had many interdimensional experiences, yeah. that's enough to cue me in. I'm, I'm on the right track, you know, experientially digging deeper and expanding things. But the problem is, even if we haven't, we can't keep this out of the churches. We can't keep the d- discussion stifled. Right. You know, this is keeping people who would aspire, even if as a pastor or something, somebody hasn't attained whatever spiritual level, they certainly shouldn't put a damper on other people's experiences and their spiritual walk. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot to be said for, okay, protecting them from illusions of the devil and things like that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, we need to uh, remember we're here to cultivate a spiritual cognition. Right. You know, not just to wait for it with their sitting on our hands. Exactly. All right, well, Beautiful. enough of that, because we'll come back to it next week. Um, we're getting ready to wrap up the show. Uh, next week, we're going to be discussing uh, all new topics, including maybe some of what we've been talking about today, but we'll be talking about the mystery of Golgotha, uh, which, if you don't know, that's the name mm. of the hill that uh, Jesus was crucified on and the significance of his blood flowing and hitting the earth and what happened in that moment that changed and split history. And, uh, and we'll discuss uh, ideas that individuals like uh, you that are listening right now are sending over to Robert at NewPrecept.com. Adam, what do you think about the mystery of Golgotha? I'm sure. Actually, Adam, I want you to save that thought because we're getting ready to get off the air. Yeah. Yeah, we'll so, save it for next week. Yeah. It's going to be fun. So I just want to remind everybody to like and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash spiritual realities. That's realities, plural. Uh, newprecept.com. You can go there and uh, sign up for the mailing list. Uh, send any ideas to Robert at New Precept. And we're on Spotify, iTunes, and Facebook Live. Absolutely. Also, 3dayflight.com, imaginevegancafe.com. Good food. Check us out. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Serving Tennessee, Mississippi, and Arkansas. The latest news stories are here. This is KWAM Memphis.